about the coming of Jesus. So the first Sunday, Brian spoke ab about the announcement to Zechariah about the, the, the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, and then two weeks ago, Aaron spoke about the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary about the coming of Jesus. Last week, um, Heidi spoke about the announcement to the Magi, or the wise men, via star, which she didn't finish. And we, I want to somehow get her to finish some of that stuff because it's profound. Linking that to Daniel and way back. It's an, it's an amazing story. Because I think so often we think of these things, oh, these are just little Christmas stories. But they're actually rooted in a deep, deep history of God's people. As is the story today. This narrative, not a story in terms of a fairy tale, but the narrative of this announcement to shepherds by the angel uh, about a savior being born. And let me just go back there and close the Bible, Luke chapter 2. And so what I want to do is briefly speak a little bit about the announcement and then talk about a few other things that come around this announcement that I find fascinating. They Sometimes we overlook them. They're just sitting there, and I think they're worth looking at or just mentioning that might lead you to open that door and go and investigate for yourself. But what is the announcement that comes out of this text? The angel appears, and the announcement is, I'm in the wrong chapter, chapter 2. Um, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. And here's the announcement. I bring you good news, the gospel. So when we talk about the gospel, it's the good news. That word's an announcement. A proclamation that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, which is what town? Bethlehem. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's the announcement. We have to think through that announcement because it's really important. Because at, at the heart of the gospel that we know that Jesus is, is that Jesus has incarnated into this world and he's come to bring a new way of living, a new life, a new joy, a new hope for all the people. That's the good news. Jesus has come. Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we can get so fin finicky about this theology and that theology. And does, but actually, the gospel is the proclamation, not the discussion, not the debate. It's the announcement that Jesus, God, has incarnated into our world to live among us and bring a new way of living. And this God, this incarnation of God is the Savior. What does that imply if, if, if the announcement is there's a Savior? What does it imply? That we need saving. What do we need saving from? Sin. Death. Sorry? Ourselves. When you say, part of the problem when we announce the gospel today in our world, Jesus has come to save you from your sins, Tyler. Never been raised in the church doesn't even know that he is a sinner. So the Savior word is actually irrelevant. Does that make sense? 
This was announced to shepherds who were Jews. So they had a long history of understanding that they were sinful in the eyes of God and because they had all these festivals and offerings that they had to perform every year to make right with God. So, but there was always this expectation that a Savior would come, a Messiah, the Lord, would come and actually make things right. So when this announcement comes, sure, they are terrified. So would you be if suddenly, you know, I don't know how big an angel is standing next to you. But the announcement of what it is, they're a little startled, but it's like, oh, suddenly all their history opens up to them. So when we want to talk today in our world, in a postmodern city where less than 20% of people go to church, whatever, to speak about the Savior, we have to go back a bit and lay a platform so that the Savior makes sense. Because if you don't know you've sinned, you have no need of a Savior. I mean, you have a need of a Savior, you just don't know that you need it. So, the Savior has been born to you. Who's to you in this context? The Jews. But we know in the fullness it's actually a Savior for the whole world. Because actually the, the narrative of the Old Testament always includes the Gentiles and to the nations. And we know that when Jesus comes, the Great Commission, everything, it's to the nations, it's to all people. So it's come specifically to the Jews for a short moment of time, then to expand out this good news to the whole world. So when we read the story, we need to find our own narrative in that narrative and say that this Savior has been born, this Savior has come for us. It's good news to us. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord has come to us to help us to live the life that we were always intended to live. And then there's this strange thing. There's a sign. Good news comes with a sign. You will find a baby lying in a manger, which is kind of uh, the most weird thing, don't you think? Except if you were a Jew. Because the Jews knew their Bible or their Old Testament. They knew it well. They were raised in it. Even a poor shepherd uneducated, would have been raised in the Jewish faith, understanding their scriptures. They might not have been able to read it. They might not have been able to write it. But they would have heard it and they would have known in it because it would have been ground into them from as a baby. And this was it. Then in Isaiah, 7, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, There will be a sign for the liberation of Israel. There will be a virgin who will have a child. That's a prophecy that goes back. Isaiah, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. So that's been resting with the Jews for a long, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They've had this longing. And this, this, when that was first given, they must have thought, oh, my word, what is that? But it's resting with them for hundreds of years. God doesn't seem to be in a hurry. And then suddenly this announcement, the Savior is here and you will find him. And the sign, a baby in a manger. Let's go see, say the shepherds. So as we get tucked into a few other things, let's not forget the announcement, the good news, the gospel. It's the announcement, it's the proclamation that Jesus has come 
and he's Messiah, Savior, Emmanuel, the Lord, he's God. That's the announcement. And he's come to demonstrate and give us a whole new way of living. Can I move on? Is that all right? That's in essence the gospel. And sometimes we just really, really complicate it. Um, I want to go around that a little bit. Because there are a few, for me, some interesting things in this text. Just, just to, you know, get our imagination stirred. The one is this. I want to read from verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus, who was, who was Caesar Augustus? Okay, he's the emperor of Rome, or the whole Roman Empire. Where, where does he find himself? He's in Rome. It's a long way ago. Most of these Jews have never been to Rome. They just here in this little place and they have rulers and but they're under the Roman Empire some guy sitting in a in his throne room way over there has a makes a decision that he wants to take a census he wants to know how many people are in the empire how big is my empire how many people mostly we know in the Old Testament whenever you counted your armies and counted your people was not a good thing but they didn't have that history so everyone has to go to the place of their birth or where their clan, their family is from. Like saying, let's take a census and I have to go back to South Africa or maybe back to France. Where would you go? You know, we'd all be going different places because we'd have to go take a census. All right? So Joseph and Mary, who's pregnant, are living in Nazareth. All right? He's from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah. So where's their central place is Bethlehem. So they have to go to Bethlehem. The point I'm trying to make is this, is that God orchestrates human affairs for the sake of his purposes and for the sake of fulfilling the prophetic word that he brought to his people thousands of years ago. He will orchestrate things or he will use what's happening. Isn't it fascinating that the gospel, now I'm going to be very careful when I say this, that the gospel went to the known world on the backs of colonial expansion. Now, there's some good and terrible things in that story because the missionaries that went didn't do a good job sometimes when they went to Africa or wherever. They're like controlling people. But the gospel couldn't have gone to the outermost parts of the earth as we know today until a time had come and that there were ships that could travel that far and adventurers who wanted to go that far. So God uses the natural thing that is happening in the world to expand his gospel. Even to the extent that Israel is kind of the center of what is the known world. Where everything goes through there. Egypt goes and the road system has just been developed. The gospel can go out. It's a natural thing that is used for the supernatural work of God. So don't bum on the internet. It can be used wisely. It can be used badly, as did the missionary endeavor with Colonius. It was used terribly. But the gospel went out. God orchestrates natural things for the sake of his purposes and for the sake of fulfilling the things that he has promised. And in fact, if you go look, have you got Micah 5 2 there? So I don't have to look it up. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, whatever that word is, 
But if you actually go back in Genesis, they use that word a lot to speak about Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. There's a prophetic word that the ruler of God's people would come from this little town, no town called Bethlehem. Mary's pregnant with the Messiah. For that to be fulfilled, she'd have to go to Bethlehem. There's no need for her to go to Bethlehem. She lives in Nazareth. It's very uncomfortable to get on a donkey and ride when you're pregnant or walk. But the ruler makes a decision. You better go. Isn't that, don't you, I find that amazing. Maybe you think, oh, who cares? I find it totally fascinating the way God works because then you start looking at the scriptures and history and seeing how God interweaves things. Is that right? So just tweak your appetite a little bit on that one. Go do some work. Second thing is the, the idea of shepherds. That God chose to announce this great gospel to shepherds. Lowly people, uneducated. But there was one thing about a shepherd that was really, really important. And that they were faithful. Because there's a, there's a thread that runs through the Bible about shepherds and hirelings. Those that are hired to look after the sheep, but when the trouble comes, they run. And for the true shepherds who stay, and it actually says these shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. These are people that cared. And it's interesting that the, the announcement comes to shepherds because it's coming to announce Jesus of the house of David, whose ancestors Abraham, you can look at Matthew 1, speaks about Jesus' genealogy, son of Abraham, son of David, both who were shepherds. In fact, when David was, was anointed king, he still remained a shepherd. He was known as the shepherd king. And Jesus follows in his footsteps as the shepherd king. I am the great shepherd in John chapter 10, linking back to Psalm 23. Shepherds are important in the Bible. An ordinary task, an ordinary person used for supernatural things. An ordinary person to foreshadow the great shepherd Jesus. And then if, we want to, if I want to be a pastor, if I, and I believe I am, then I've got to say, what do I learn from this? Do I keep watch over the flock by night? Am I caring? Because that's what Jesus is doing. Every day, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He's still exercising that shepherdly role over his people, and then through the shepherds that he has for us today. Shepherds are important, but lowly. It's amazing that he chose to do it that way. In fact, the whole announcements to the birth, for the birth of Jesus are weird to who they announce. They, they just come in funny ways. So here's, I'm shepherding, you know, I'm at home and I'm praying for Tyler, who's my neighbor, and praying for the kids, and Heidi, and suddenly there's, poof, there's a, like a 10-foot apparition standing next to me, saying, oh, and would I be afraid? I'd be terrified if they were terrified. What does the angel say, first thing, before there's an announcement? Don't be afraid. Now, you can say, well, well of course, well, that's what he'd say. I want to say, again, that's a common thread that runs through the whole of the Old Testament. Whenever God wants to do something, he starts by saying, do not be afraid. I got you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. The Great Commission is, all authority has been given to me. Go, I'm with you. Don't, there's no need to be afraid. 
this announcement that I'm making to you. Don't be fearful of it because you're going to have to go make announcements of your own. The shepherds, the shepherds going to start announcing this everywhere. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Do you remember when Joshua takes over from Moses? Be strong and courageous, this idea. Don't be afraid. God says it to Joshua. Moses says it to Joshua. The people say it to Joshua. Don't be afraid. Actually, it's a common thing. This story has all these threads that run through the Old Testament. And if we had time and we could unpack them all, we could just see how they flow and come into this, culminate in this one event. It's actually quite astounding. Um, God orchestrates things in the natural for the sake of his purposes. God uses ordinary, sometimes uneducated, lowly jobs to actually get his job done and to make the announcement. But it has history in terms of shepherds. There's an idea that this could be scary, but I'm with you, you don't have to be afraid. Next thing is this idea of proclamation and acclamation. The gospel, the announcement of the gospel that comes here. Because one of the, the wonderful parts of the story is that the heavenly host appear around the angel and begin to worship. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth on whom his favor rests. Glory to God. When you go look at the book of Revelation, then it's hallelujah. It's just this great sense of worship and praise. The gospel always includes acclamation. It always includes praise. Whenever somebody steps across the threshold of faith because of the announcement and the proclamation leads to acclamation, we can't separate those two. We can't make the gospel this dull, blah. It's an exciting announcement. Have you ever watched Draft Day? Not the movie. We actually, on, on, when they call a guy and they've been expecting that guy and they call him on stage and they give his number and he's going to play for whatever team and everyone, wow, the announcement needs to proclamate, to acclamation. We do it in the natural. This is telling us it's also in the supernatural. It's also in our world. So I want to start parts of New Year, to, this New Year coming, to talk about worship and praise. Why? Because it's actually part of the gospel story. And our world has crushed it. Don't get too excited about God, but get really excited about your football team. Don't get too excited about God, but get really excited about Liverpool soccer. Don't get too excited about God, but get really excited about whatever. But actually, the gospel story actually flips that and says, no, get really excited. In fact, David, it tells us, was so excited about the presence of God coming back that he danced in his underpants. You know the story? And every six steps or whatever, they sacrificed a bull on a dusty road, and there was sweat and blood and mud and all mixed. He would have been covered. And then someone criticizes him. Remember his wife says, don't, don't, don't do that. You're the king. He says, no, I'll become even more undignified than that. Why? Because the proclamation of the presence of God, the proclamation, the good news that God is with us, which is what the, that cart bringing the presence back in, we'll cover that sometime next year. He says, I'm going to acclaim. I'm going to shout. Is that right? You can't separate those things. I find that quite fascinating. 
So I'm just touching on all these little topics. The next one's the issue of heaven. How about that one? That's a small topic. Um, but I want to I I say this for, for you to think through. Is that in our world, the, uh, there's the pearl of great price. I love her. Um, in our world, there is this association between heaven and hell. When I became a Christian, our church was turn or burn type of message. Heaven and hell. But actually in the Bible, there's no link between those two in any verse anywhere. It's always heaven and earth. God created the heavens and earth. God is restoring the heavens and the earth. Does that make sense? So when we talk about heaven through, I think it's Dante's Inferno, or one of those things came into our world that heaven is up there and hell is down there and neither twain shall meet. And because of people using imagery trying to explain something, heaven's up there, hell is down there. So heaven's above the earth, hell is below the earth. But actually it's not a clear picture. Actually heaven is the space that God dwells, which is everywhere around us. God is everywhere. So it says here in the text that the angel appeared. Now, he could have come down. down. And then when we read in Acts, it says Jesus ascended. So there's a, you know, going somewhere, showing he's leaving. But actually, the rest of Scripture whether there's an epiphany where God appears to the people in the Old Testament or here when angels appear, they just appear. They st- it's like, if you've seen the movies, it's like they step out of the invisible realm into the visible realm. Which us who are so science-orientated just think, oh, what a lot of rubbish. No, there's a supernatural world. And it's around us. So when it says the angel appeared, the angel appeared. And then the heavenly host appeared. Just what? This whole thing just came. And then they, it says they left. They disappeared. The Greek, it's they disappeared. So they were v- visible and then they were invisible. Rather than they were up there, came down and went back up, they were here. They were invisible and became visible because the invisible is around us. The supernatural is around us. In, this, in science fiction, it's the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension. We use all different words. Actually, we today don't want to believe in the supernatural, but Hollywood does. They make movies about it all the time. There is a supernatural. It just steps into our world and steps out. What does it mean God is with us? God is with us. He's here can step in, step out. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. You can, you can step into it. In the visible. Does it make sense? Now, no, it actually doesn't make sense. It actually makes no sense at all. Because we are limited to a certain way of thinking and a certain way of seeing. But if we believe there is a God who's done all sorts of things, and God has always existed and fills everything in every way, then God is here. And at any moment, an angel, a seraphim, a cherubim, could step into our world, step back out. So, for your thought. Is that all right? 
There's a whole, that's a whole book's been written on that subject. This is for your, just for you to think about. That this is our space, and then there's God's space. Now, this is also God's space, but he's everywhere. Is that all right? Because I always loved this text, that the angels appeared, and then they disappeared. Anyway, last thing. There is a, res- a response to the gospel. When there's an, an announcement of the gospel, there's always a response. It's impossible to be indifferent. So there are three responses, I think, that, are in, that come out in this text. When you read Acts chapter 2, there are definitely two that come out there when they preach the gospel and Peter preaches for the first time. You either believe, ah, yes, or you don't believe and you reject, or you say, let me go and investigate. So these shepherds had a story, they had listened to it, and they said, let's go see if this is all true. They went to investigate, and they got excited, and they went back just declaring. But you cannot be indifferent to the gospel. Is that right? If the gospel is true, and if you accept the gospel, it makes claims upon your life. It makes claims upon every part of your life. So the moment you say, yes, I'm going to believe, well, you're actually in from your own perspective, in deep trouble because you're going to have to make some serious adjustments. Or you disbelieve. That's actually more serious in the eternal. And if you're not sure, go and check it out and come out somewhere. But you cannot hear the gospel and remain unaffected. When you do believe, as these shepherds did, Their response after being there was to go and speak and tell and worship and glorify God. When you accept the gospel, the proclamation, the announcement of who Jesus is, and that becomes real to you, the response is you tell people, you get excited, you praise God. So... I'm a closet Christian. Go on. However, it's really hard to be a Christian today. To tell people you are a follower of Jesus puts you in a category that actually works against you in this world. So... Therefore, we must count the cost before we step and say we respond. As they had to do all those centuries ago. This is a great story, a great narrative of God intersecting humanity with Jesus. And he proclaims it clearly, fulfills centuries of destiny and prophecy and expectation. And you know, with all of that, most of them didn't get it. They, weren't, they, they just were not expecting Jesus to come that way, even though it's all there when you look back. But the simple shepherds got it. And I want to ask you, in the simplicity of your faith, of our faith, is to step into this reality that Jesus has come 
to give us a new way of living, to establish the kingdom of God and for us to live and walk in it. And as we come to the communion, it's a reminder that the end of that part of that story was that he died. He came, lived, and then he died on behalf. He had to come as a human to stand in the space and in the place of humanity. And we celebrate that and we remember that through the broken bread, broken body, shed blood, the cup. But it's also the forward looking of the announcement that Jesus is coming back. And we look forward to that day when he will appear again in glory with the angels. However, you know, it's all a language and pictures to help us understand that it's going to be something significant.